Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life He gives. Wrote this book to the church at Thessalonica. And before they arrived in Thessalonica, they were in a city called Philippi. And they were planning a church in Philippi. But they experienced tons of persecution in Philippi, to the point where at one point there was an angry mob that rose up against them preaching about Jesus, and they were arrested, they were stripped, they were beaten, they were flogged, they were imprisoned, they were put in chains. There's a whole story. You can, you can read about it in the book of Acts in the Bible in the New Testament, chapter 16 in the book of Acts. And so when they leave Philippi and go to Thessalonica, what happens is that trouble follows them. And so um, it got so bad, in fact, at Thessalonica, all this persecution and obstruction, it got so bad that they had to flee and go to this city called Berea. And then they followed them to Berea. So they had to flee again, and they went to Athens, and then they went to Corinth. And it's in Corinth that this letter to the church at Thessalonica was written. And it's a letter of friendship. It's a letter of concern. And, and sometimes what happens when we read the Bible is we read it from a distance and, and we fail to imagine what it was really like. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever read through the scriptures and you're reading it and you're trying to follow, but it, 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 it just it feels otherly, right? And sometimes it can be helpful when we read the Bible to use our imagination and to imagine ourselves in the story. And so just imagine for a minute um, in our context Let's say that uh, Abby, myself, and Ian, who pastor this church here in Burlington, let's say we were being persecuted and our lives were being threatened, and we decided to go to Plattsburgh, to cross the lake where it was safer, where people wouldn't kill us. And we just left you guys here, and, and we hope you figure it out, but we have to go over there. And then the people who were threatening our lives followed us to Plattsburgh. And so we had to relocate. So you, you can imagine that we would, would be concerned about the church here. We would want to know that you guys are okay, that you're making it. Are you being persecuted too? Are you able to gather at all? Are, are, is, is your faith um, continuing to be strengthened? Are you doing the mission of Jesus? How are you doing? And so this letter was written out of that context. First Thessalonians was written by these three pastors, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, because they were really concerned about the church in Thessalonica. So keep that in mind as we go through these two chapters today, chapters two and three. I'm going to invite Peter and Kelly Mormon up, and they are going to read chapter two for us in its entirety. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the, the passage up on the screen so you can follow along, and we'll dive right in. First Thessalonians chapter two. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure, you know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you, and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare this, his good news to you boldly, in spite of great opposition. So you can see, we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. 
Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you. We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that you would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we trusted each of you as a father treats his own, pardon me, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They failed to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Thank you, guys. Okay, so let's go back now and take a look at a few of the words that we just read together. So, so in chapter 2, these pastors, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, are, are rehearsing their history with the people in, in Thessalonica. They're, re, they're rehearsing their relationship, the time that they spent together. And, and they're articulating their affection for them. They're, they're reminding them of their purity, of their friendship, because these same people who were threatening their lives were also telling the, the, the members of the church at Thessalonica that, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were, uh, were crooks. <laughs> that they had these impure motives and, and, and that they were really just these itinerant preachers who were coming through to kind of make a buck off them. And they didn't really care about them. They weren't trying to be friends with them. It was all a, a ploy that they had ulterior motives. And so in verse 7 of chapter 2, Paul kind of addresses that 
and, and he, he defends their, their intentions. He says this, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And so they're, they're, they're writing to the church and they're, they're saying, we weren't aloof preachers. We, we, weren't, we weren't out to make a buck off you. Uh, we, we didn't keep our distance. We shared our very lives with you. He tells them, you know, when I, when I was a young pastor, I remember attending a pastor's conference in Chicago. I have a thousand pastors at this conference. And one of the, the main keynote speakers was, was talking to this room of pastors. I was one of them, a young, impressionable pastor. And, and he was saying how as, as pastors, we have to keep our distance from our congregation or they won't respect us. And I just remember thinking as a young person, that sounds toxic, And he went on and on and on talking about how he doesn't have time for friendships because he's got to do the work of God. And that's being a pastor is lonely. And I just remember thinking, and lots of people amening and listening, but I remember as a young person, a young pastor in my 20s, just thinking like, this sounds toxic and this is not what I'm signing up for. Um, I think that what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are doing here in this book, in this letter of Thessalonians is really explaining the difference between a healthy church culture and a toxic church culture. Um, Some of you might be familiar with Scott McKnight. He's a theologian and a Bible teacher, a scholar. He came out with a book last year called A Church Called Tove. And in this book, he's convinced that the American church, especially the evangelical American church, has allowed a lot of toxicity. into its culture. And so he came out with this book, a church called Tov, and Tov is Hebrew for goodness. And it's specifically God's goodness. And so he, in this book, explains seven signs of a toxic church culture because he's trying to wake up the church in America and and Christians in general, be like, hey, you need to identify if there's toxicity in in your church. And then you need to say something and do something about it. And, and here are the seven signs of a toxic church culture, according to Scott McKnight. Number one, they have narcissistic leaders, leaders who make everything about themselves. They're the center of everything that happens in the church. Number two, they have pastors and leaders who wield their power with intimidation and fear. In other words, they, they um, intimidate response and, and they manipulate response. A third sign of a toxic church, according to Scott McKnight in his book, is when institutions, the institution of the church matters more than people. That programs become more important than people, right? That people become cogs in a machine, and, and if they stop working, they're dismantled and discarded, and new ones are put in, right? Um, so the, sometimes churches will say this as a value, like, we value people over programs. So how we say it at Church of the Well is first people, then ministry, right? So if we don't have kids' church workers, we just don't have kids' church. We don't it, shame people or, or, or say, oh, no, we need this because this machine needs to run, right? So that's a sign that you can look for is there, is there toxicity in the church. Here's another one. Um, when false narratives are given instead of the truth about allegations, 
And so is, is, are the leaders and the pastors in the church listening if there are allegations or are there, is there false narrative spun? Here's, here's another. When loyalty is more important than doing justice or doing what's right. So if something's wrong in the church and, it, and it's addressed and, and the leaders or pastors say, well, you know, you, you just need to be loyal. That's a red flag that there's a toxic culture there, right? When the leaders are celebrities and enjoy it, take advantage of it instead of servants of the church. Of course, the, the argument against this, well, wasn't Jesus famous? Yes, he was, but he didn't take advantage of it. He was a servant of all. He told his disciples, two of his disciples, James and John, came to him and said, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus tells them, oh, no, if you're going to be the greatest, you have to be the servant of everyone. It's actually inverted. Like, the kingdom of God and the church should be the exact opposite of, like, the business world, right? And instead of climbing a ladder to the top, you climb down under and then finally, when the culture becomes a leader culture instead of a pastor-shepherd culture. And so these are just seven signs that Scott McKnight said the evangelical, the American church needs to be looking for in their churches and, and, and addressing it. And Paul and Ty Timothy and Silas are saying to the church at Thessalonica, like, we weren't like this. We, we shared our very lives with you. In the next verse, verse 9 of chapter 2, they go on to say this to the, the Christians at Thessalonica. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day, we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And so what they're doing here is they're pointing to their bivocational approach um, to ministry as evidence of their intentions. So, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we know, uh, were tent makers, and they made tents. And so we, we know from Scripture that they did receive financial assistance and, and donations from other churches, but they also offset that cost by just making tents and working. And so they're telling the, the church at Thessalonica, when we were there, we worked all day making tents so that we wouldn't be a burden on you. Like that. And so they're pointing to their bivocational life as evidence of their intentions. Our, our intentions are pure. They're good. You know, I, I was bivocational for the first six years of the church here in Burlington when, when we planted the church. And, and I, um, I miss that season a little bit. There's parts of it I don't miss, right? Like 60, 70 hour weeks, I don't miss that. I don't miss like, you know, being away from my family f for that much time. I, I, I don't miss, there were times during the early years of our church where, you know, I wasn't getting paid anything for pastoral work. There was about a two year window when I was getting a whopping $250 a week for working at the church, which for a family of six, is, is, that doesn't go very far. Um, so I had all these other jobs, but it was a really beautiful season because um, I, was, I was proving to myself and to God and to all my friends and my neighbors and my people in my church and even my coworkers who, who weren't Christians that I believed in the church and that I loved Jesus and I, wanted, I, I love people. And I want, I want to minister to people and tell them about Jesus. And I remember in some of my jobs, you know, 
people found out I was a pastor, and sometimes people don't want to talk to you if you're a pastor because they have assumptions of how you're going to be. Um, but after a certain amount of time, when they realize, oh, like, you're a pastor and you don't get paid anything, but you're also doing, like, extra jobs to feed your family and, like, pay your mortgage and do those things. So you must be, your intentions must be good. And I, I miss that because now I'm, now I'm an official, right, full-time None of, none of the rest of the staff are. The rest of the other five people, they're all part-time and, and, and doing this. I, I kind of, I kind of want to go back there <laughs> because there's something beautiful about that, right? And Paul and Sim, Timothy and Silas are telling the church at Thessalonica, like, that's, that's, what, that's what we were doing because they're, they're reminding the Thessalonian church of all this because they want to reassure them that everything they're, they're doing comes from their concern, and, and everything they're about to teach and say to this church, they want them to know that it's coming from a place of friendship and concern and that they want them to live up to their calling in God. And when we get to chapter four next week, that's going to be important because they're going to address some things in the church and it could come across as like heavy-handed. It could come across as hard, something hard to hear. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying, hey, like what we're going to share with you, what we're going to teach you, it comes from a place of genuine concern and authenticity. And it's not for our ego and it's not for our pocketbook. We're doing it because, because we want to see you live up to your calling in God. You're calling it in Christ. Verse 12 in chapter 2 says this. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. That's what their heart is. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. All right. Are you guys ready to jump into chapter three, which is a continuation of this? I'm going to invite um, Chris and Tracy to come up. They're going to read chapter three for us. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you are going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. That is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you, and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy had just returned, bringing good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy, and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because, you, because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to to you very soon. 
And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. Thanks for reading that. Okay, chapter 3. This, this next chapter here that we just read, chapter 3, focuses on Timothy's recent visit to, visit to Thessalonica because they're concerned, they're worried about the church, right? And so they send Timothy back to Thessalonica because maybe they're not as concerned about him getting killed. I don't know. Maybe we would send Ian back. <laughs> Me and Abby would have to vote. We'd have two-thirds. So... Um, so they send, they send Timothy to Thessalonica to check on the church because they're just really worried about the church. Like, in fact, they, they use this language. They go as far to say this, when we could stand it no longer. That sounds pretty anxious to me, right? Like we, we, we couldn't stand it any longer. And then they say this, we were afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you. They're wondering, like, how is this church doing? Are they okay? Are the folks okay? They, they even say this, in, in this chapter, we were worried that our work had been useless. Hmm. I love this chapter as a pastor because it's so honest and vulnerable. Because here's, here's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they're saying, we were really worried. We were thinking that our, our work was useless. We were thinking that the, the devil had, like, the tempter had, like, ru- ruined and hurt you and, 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 and wrecked the work that God was doing there. And, you know, pastoring a church at times can, can be anxiety-inducing and, and stressful, but most of all, can leave you feeling a bit insecure. Because there's this, this false narrative that comes to, to many pastors and, and ministers, I think, in campus ministries as well, and in nonprofit uh, Christian ministries, that, like, the minute something doesn't go well, you feel the responsibility and the burden for it. Like, oh, man, I'm not teaching people how to be disciples of Jesus. And I'm not, like, doing a good job pastoring. And I, I can tell you just from 25 years of pastoral experience that that's something that we just, as pastors and leaders in Christian in organizations and churches, kind of deal with a lot. And I love that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, like, these are, these are the great apostles. And, they're, and they, they, they had that. They were thinking, man, we were, we were worried that our work was being useless and it wasn't mattering and that the enemy was going like, to take, take you guys out. And, and, and when we couldn't stand it any longer, we sent Timothy to check in. And he brings back this glowing report that these folks are holding up under all the persecution. Their faith is growing. The mission of, of Jesus is continuing in, in their midst. You know, uh, sometimes... Um, I'll just let you know that as pastors, sometimes we're insecure. We're uncertain of what God's doing. And just like this glowing report from Timothy lifted Paul, Silas, and Timothy's spirit, when we hear testimony of God moving in our midst, in your midst, in your lives, man, it means the world. A couple weeks ago, we had an open mic Sunday testimony time. I missed it because I was recovering from covid I was so bummed because I, I love like when we just open up the microphone and have people come and, and, and testify and share stories about how God's at work in their lives and in their friends' lives. And, and have you guys ever noticed that when you hear a testimony or, or you hear about God doing something for someone, it builds your faith and it reminds you, oh yeah, God's at work in the world even when I can't see it. 
That, it, the power of testimony is just amazing. And so when Timothy comes back with this testimony that, that the folks are holding up, that they're, 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 they're dealing with this persecution, they're following Jesus, they're sticking together, they're serving their neighborhoods and communities and, and loving people and, and, and telling people about the good news of Jesus, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are like so comforted by that. Um, and so just for the sake of time, because two chapters is a lot to preach, verse by verse. I just want to highlight two verses from this chapter, and then I'll end, I promise, okay? So the first verse I want to highlight is verse 4. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. Again, I find this chapter so refreshing. It's so encouraging to me, and, and I, I love it as a pastor, because this right here is not something that's communicated often enough, um, especially in the American church, I'll say. In fact, I think oftentimes the opposite of this is preached in church, that, that, that Jesus is going to make your life so easy. Just try Jesus. Everything's going to go so good. And it's like this bait and switch, and as a pastor, I hear that message, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. And, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying, hey, we, we warned you that troubles would come, and they did, <laughs> because following Jesus doesn't make life easier. It makes it more difficult. It makes it more complex, right? If you follow Jesus, you know this. If you don't follow Jesus yet, you need to know this. <laughs> um, I'm not sure where we got this idea that following Jesus would just make our lives easy. The, the central metaphor and symbol and icon of our faith is a crucifix. It's an instrument of death. And yet we think that following Jesus, every, all our problems go away. It's like having a, a, a genie that we just rub the lamp and pray three times. And man, Jesus came through again for us. Following Jesus doesn't make our life easy. It, it, it makes it more complex. The Apostle Peter said it this way in, in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, friends, don't be surprised when trouble comes your way, as if something strange is happening to you. But rejoice when you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You know what I find as a pastor? When we buy this false narrative that Jesus makes all of our troubles go away, here's what happens. Trouble comes our way. And then we think, okay, either he's not real or I'm not good enough to do this. And so I guess I just pack it in. But what the scriptures tell us time and again is that when we follow Jesus, we have to take up our cross and follow him. Like there is trouble, there is challenge, there is difficulty, there is hardship. He's going to ask us to do things that are difficult and challenging and hard, but... It's worth it, right? The disciples said to Jesus at one point, where else do we go? You alone have the words of life. What else are we supposed to do? I love that. I, I love how frank this letter is to the Thessalonian church. Like, hey, like, don't be surprised. I told you trouble is going to come. But you're hanging in there, and it's worth it. One last verse, okay? One last verse. Verse 10 in chapter 3. It says this, Night and day... We pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith 
I want to focus on that phrase. To fill the gaps in your faith. What do you suppose Paul, Silas, and Timothy meant by that phrase? To fill the gaps in your faith. Um, there, there's a pastor in Queens, New York that I, I love to, to listen to, and he also writes books, and I read his books. He's, he's actually the, the keynote speaker at our Ecclesia National Conference that I have to attend virtually this year instead of in Orlando, Florida. Aren't you sad for me? I'm supposed to be in Orlando, Florida this week. I'm going to be watching Zoom instead. Jesus, help me. <laughs> like 15 to 20 hours of Zoom. But I get to, I get to listen to, to Pastor Rich Velotis, who um, pastors a church in Queens. And I want to put up a quote by him on the screen. And this is what he says about filling in gaps. If Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day, for three years with his disciples, he would have spent over 8,000 hours with them, like in person with Jesus. Can you imagine 8,000 in-person hours with Jesus? How incredible how much we would grow in our faith. And after all that time, they still had major gaps. And then he says this, and this is like the punch to like the pastors, right? One hour a week will never change people. We need a life that abides in him with support of others. I love that. See, that's what Paul Timothy and Silas are saying is like, oh, we, we just want to be there with you so we can fill in the gaps of your faith. And, and I, I love this about the church, that as a church, as a community of believers, we can fill in the gaps for each other. And, and I'm not saying that I'm filling in all the gaps. You, you folks, when you show me the love of Jesus, when you teach me how to follow Jesus, I have gaps too as a pastor. And we do this for one another, right? And it's a beautiful thing about the church. And, and Paul, Timothy, and Silas say, like, that's, that's what we, we want to do. We want to see the Holy Spirit fill in all the gaps in your faith to make you strong. To, to, because here's the thing. Learning about Jesus, following Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus, getting to know Jesus, spending time with Jesus, that does not happen overnight, Right? Discipleship is this lifelong process that we commit ourselves to, and then we do it with others, with other believers, and people who are, aren't yet believing. Right? We do it together. And um, I think that might be a good place. I'm just talking a lot, I feel like, because I haven't preached in a, a month and a half. I'm going to stop. Because I'm going to stop here. Here's how we're going to end our time today. Usually, you know, I'll pray for us all, but what we're going to do... Um, this morning. I'll have the worship folks come up and get ready. We're going to end with one song. But before we do that, um, we're going to close our time together with what some church traditions call a passing of the peace. We've never done this here before, but I grew up as a kid doing it. If you, anybody familiar with that phrase, passing of the peace? A few of you are. And, and what that is, is, is when you extend the peace of Jesus to your neighbor. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. When we, when we come here right now, like we're sitting in this room, we have no idea what the person next to us or the person across from us or the person across the room is going through. We don't know what, what their, the burdens they have, the difficulties they have, the challenges they have, what's going on in their life. And so it can be a ministry for us, no matter where we are, to, to extend the peace of Jesus to each other. And so in some church traditions, they have this thing called passing of the peace where 
they take a, a 30 seconds to a minute and they go to three or four people and they shake hands or the post-COVID thing is the fist bump, fist bump people and they say, peace be with you. And then the other person says, and also with you. And it sounds silly, but it, it's a lot deeper than, hey, how are you? It's, it's a ministry, you're ministering, you're passing the peace of Christ, you're extending it to another person. Even if you're not in a, in a peaceful place yourself, you, you say, peace be with you and also with you. So here's what we'll do. Worship band's gonna come up. They're gonna get ready to play a song. We're gonna take 30 to 60 seconds. I want you to find three, four people. No conversation, right? No conversation, just passing the peace. Peace be with you and also with you. Go find someone else. Peace be with you and also with you. And then we're gonna sing a song together and we'll pray and close. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.